Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to mention to you that you need to check out all the work we're doing on social media. So don't worry about Instagram, don't worry about LinkedIn, don't worry about Pinterest and those types of things. Where you're going to find me is on Twitter. Every single day I'm on Twitter. We're sharing a lot of the thoughts, a lot of the tips, a lot of the breaking news is coming out on Twitter. And then add to that our expat money forum. We are doing so much amazing things in the forums. There's special content that's not found anywhere else. There's a lot of networking. There's just so much happening on this forum that I really hope you get a chance to participate. And you can access that at expatmoneyforum.com. So find me on Twitter at Thora Mikkel or join the forum at Expat Money Forum. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. And today's guest is the founder, CEO, and principal analyst and editor at Lewis James LLC. He has dedicated his work to the cause for free markets and individual liberty and currently a member of the Board of Directors for Liberty International. He is a writer and publisher with many books to his name, along with co-authoring two Doug Casey books from International Man, who he worked with alongside for 16 years, writing under the pen name Lewis James. Speaking five languages and living in Puerto Rico, please welcome to the show, Lobo Tigre. Lobo, how are you doing? Mikel, it's great to be on the show. It's a wonderful warm day here in sunny San Juan, Puerto Rico. Excellent, excellent. And it's got to be what, first thing in the morning there now? Actually, it's 11. We're on Atlantic time, uh, and we don't do daylight savings. It's a little confusing for people in the U.S. sometimes, but uh, we're earlier than New York, usually. Oh, interesting. Well, I want to hear a little bit about Puerto Rico a bit later on, but why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of talk us through your backstory? Um, I want to talk to you today about speculating. So maybe how you got into speculating and what that looks like. And we we can get into the details exactly what a speculator is later. But uh, yeah, just a little bit of backstory would be very helpful. Sure. Well, my name is Lobo Tigre, as you said though I wrote for almost 14 years under the pen name Louis James uh, for Doug Casey at Casey Research. Um, and that having become the known brand, that's why Louis James LLC is the name of the company. The backstory, though, is, and how I got here are the same. Uh, I grew up as, a, as an ordinary kid, I suppose. I just always hated being pushed around and told what to do. Um, I lived in a sort of army brat phenomenon, moved uh, lots of places, lots of different countries, always the outsider. And I think that made me a, a contrarian by nature. 
Uh, somewhere along the way, I stumbled upon the books of Ayn Rand. You know, the scales fell from my eyes. I got the free market perspective. And that put me in tune with Doug Casey. And um, some years ago, I was doing a sort of pirate radio station sort of thing in the early days of the Internet. And somebody suggested that I interview this Doug Casey guy. So I got him on the show, and I interviewed him in 45 minutes. He answered questions saying almost exactly what I would have said. It was like meeting my long-lost brother, intellectual brother or something. So this was in the early 90s. I knew Doug for a long time then uh, going forward. And in 2004, when he founded what then became Casey Research, he was looking for a writer, which that was my profession, that he knew in similar minds, and uh, offered me a job. So I knew nothing about mining or stocks or speculation. I didn't know what a warrant was at the time. Um, but he judged me to be a competent writer and a quick learner and brought me on and basically taught me everything I know. So I, I give huge credit to Doug Casey for um, making me the man I am today in many ways. I would say he and Rick Rule are probably my two biggest mentors in my adult life. So did that for a long time, learned all I could. And just last year, decided to go out on my own, and I am now the Independent Speculator. That's the name of the newsletter at Louis James LLC, the Independent Speculator. And um, you know, travel the world, kicking rocks and picking stocks, as they say. Happy to discuss any or all of this with. Okay, so straight off the bat, and actually, I'll have to give credit where credit is due. I learned this from you, reading one of your books, reading Totally Incorrect. Let's start off with a definition, because like you said, they can be very helpful, and let's make sure that we're all on the same page when we're talking about something. So, what is a speculator? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, <laughs> I'll jump in here and say the, the politically incorrect thing, which is a good thing to say when discussing that book is people say, oh, that's a great question, really to give themselves time to massage and answer. But this really is a great question because it's such a misunderstood word. I mean, if you say speculator to the average person, they think, oh, that's bad. You know, that's those people who buy up cigarettes or gasoline before a war, that gouge people later, right? Um, but I would defend even those actions. If those speculators didn't buy things up before a time of crisis and shortage, there would be no supply. And the fact that they can sell them at high prices when the need is so high is a market mechanism providing high demand goods uh, when there's no other option. So even the so-called evil speculator, in my view, is not evil at all. But let's get to the definition. A speculator, as opposed to a gambler, and this is a major important distinction, a speculator is someone who observes the world, uses their rational intellect to the best of their abilities and forecast trends and acts accordingly in the financial sphere. Um, the difference is between that and a gambler is a gambler just takes chances. They just assess current odds. And if they're good at it, you know, maybe they do okay. But it's all about tossing the dice. The speculator does everything possible to reduce random chance in what they're doing. They look for the most solid trends. What makes it seem similar is that you are guessing what will happen in the future. You don't know. There is certainly chance involved. But again, the rational speculator isn't just saying, oh, well, we're going to take a shot. No. The whole essence of speculation is to view the world as realistically and cold-heartedly, rationally as you can to project what will be and then position yourself to benefit. So straight off the bat, I have 
two questions about that because you did mention the word evil and and I hate to admit it, but I have been conditioned. You know, I don't know how it happened or where it happened, but when I hear the word speculated, it's like the the word that precedes it has to be evil. It's the evil speculators. Why did why do I think like that? Like why why is something like that even in my brain? Well, that's how it's defined in school. You hear if you take a, an economics course, an intro economics course, it will be those evil. And, you know, the evil word won't be there, but the implication is those evil speculators who drove up the prices during the war. I mean, they they are defined as part of the problem. It's speculators who caused prices to go into wild swings. Uh, you know, they're the bad guys. It, it's this is so widespread. I remember I was visiting an exploration project in. I want to say Colombia, might have been Ecuador. It was one of those mountainous, jungly, Andean, high Andean, not Chile or Argentina, but like up there. It was either Colombia or Ecuador, possibly Bolivia. But it was it was this jungle field where they were drilling for gold, and the plantation uh, owner, this small farmer, came by and he was just chatting with me, and. Um, and I mentioned the word speculators. Like, oh, speculators. Oh, those speculators, it's their fault. We have all these trouble in this country, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it, and it came out that in his case, uh, speculators were people who would grab up land or had grabbed it up decades ago and then do nothing with it. And, and they would keep them off the market. They would keep mineral concessions from being explored, just simply holding onto them and hoping for somebody later to come along and pay them more. So in his view, the speculator was, you know, sand in the gears, a, a blockage, an impediment to progress. And so I explained to him about what I do and, and what Doug Casey does and, and how much money you can make by seeing something that's happening in the world and positioning yourself accordingly and then being right. And you, you, you know, you could almost see the scales fall from his eyes. Like his, his eyes lit up and he's like, Oh, well, that's not bad. You know, that's, that's like me against the world. That's me using my brain and taking my chances. Yeah. And um, we started talking about stock options and, you know, different things he might do if he was lucky enough to have an ex uh, a project uh, develop along on his property that was worth something. Uh, he got all excited. I turned him into a speculator right then and there. <laughs> <laughs> you converted him at that moment. Well, I think it was probably, now I want to say maybe a 10 or 10, 12 years ago that I was reading one of Jim Rogers' books, and Jim Rogers has been on the show, and I remember him talking about speculators and short selling and a lot of these type, types of words, and maybe 12 years ago I had never heard these terms before and started to look it up, and that's when the curiosity kind of started, and he explains how necessary a lot of these professions are and how they help regulate the markets. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. Well, let's start with short sell because that's a, an easy one to hate, right? and 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 it can be abused. You know, that like any tool of any kind um, or any profession, there are good people and there are bad people. You know, there are incompetent doctors, there are quacks out there. That doesn't make medicine a bad field. Uh, you know, a knife can can cut your steak or it can cut your finger. So, short selling uh, gets a bad rap because it's kind of negative. It's when somebody thinks that an equity or an asset is likely to decline in price and places a futures contract to sell it in the future at a lower price, but at a price that he thinks is higher than it will be in the future, and therefore he can profit. And people don't like this because, say, you're Apple, 
and some short sellers say, oh, well, we think Apple stock is going down, so we're going to sell it short. Um, well, that makes Apple look bad. Or, or why are these people betting that the share price will go down? That could scare other investors away from Apple stock. So, so nobody likes it when their stock is short sold. But it's common. You know, the fact that something has short positions against it is, is so common, it's not even worth noting. You know, every, every stock with any volume has short positions against it. But as you say, this has a regulatory function. You know, if the short sellers see that management is prevaricating, right? You know, you, you, they participate, say, in a conference call and the management's going, uh, 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 but, uh, you know, they don't have good answers. You know, it's, fair for those people who perceive this to bring it to the market and say, you know what, there's something wrong with this company. We think this share price is going down. So this is a self-regulating mechanism in the market. There's a good place for that uh, short selling. And speculating is just like that. And by the way, you can speculate to the long or the short side. Um, and here's, I'll throw a freebie in for your, for your audience. One of the most reliable ways to speculate is something I learned from Doug Casey. And that is, there are few certainties in the world, but one of the near certainties when it comes to people in the world is that governments will do the wrong thing. They will almost always do the exact opposite of the right thing. It's one of the most reliable factors in the human condition is that, you know, governments don't operate based on what's best for the people they pretend to. They say so. They give lip service. But they're run by humans who are just as greedy and selfish and short-sighted as the average person out there. If anything, the power of the state attracts the worst amongst the people. And therefore, you end up with a situation where the laws and the measures taken, whatever they're called, you know, Patriot Act or Protect American Jobs Act or whatever, are meant to line somebody's pockets or another. So government can be counted on to do the wrong thing. If that's true, if you believe that and you see where that works in society at large, that gives you a powerful tool for predicting the future. You can say, well, given this situation, the government's going to do the wrong thing and position yourself accordingly. So one of the words that just triggered something when you were speaking there is un-American. I think that I've heard, I'm, I'm sure it was probably on Fox News or CNN or something like this, but you know, that it's un-American to short sell, it's un-American to speculate, it's un-American for these types of things. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what to say now because like things like this just boggle my mind, but you know, I, I'm remembering, you know, I'm remembering watching television and the propaganda and the things that have kind of been forced down my throat. Do you think that they're, well, let, let, let me just let you comment on that, I suppose. Well, you know, uh, say, say that you're Vladimir Putin, you know, justifying your never-ending reign to the Russian people. Of course, you're going to blame those evil oligarchs who don't happen to be the ones in your pocket, right? Or you're going to blame America. Or, or suppose you're, you're Maduro down in Venezuela. You know, it can't be that our new Bolivarian socialism is to cause is the cause of any of the problems in the country? No, no, it has to be those evil Americans. So, uh, blame is better to give than receive, as the famous Russian says. You know, it, people are always going to say things. To, to call something un-American is just waving the flag, hoping to get a patriotic response. Line up the sheep behind your cause. It's pure and simple manipulation. Okay, so 
I agree with you straight off the bat. Let me just put it out there. But I want to change gears a little bit. Let's talk about mining. So, okay, when I think of speculating in these types of things, often I find that it is in the mining sector. Is Do people speculate in lots of other industries, or is there a reason that people often speculate in mining stocks? Yes. So, of course, you can speculate in it. And if you go with uh, the hint that we got from Doug that I mentioned earlier, you think town and governments do the wrong thing. So in a given situation, for example, if you have to do something difficult like raise taxes or cut the budget, they're not going to do that. What are they going to do instead? They're going to inflate their way out of the problem. You can rely on that and bet accordingly. And there are a number of, of uh, consequences to that. One is higher commodities prices, which brings you to mining, which supplies raw materials. Um, you know, a lot of, not all commodities are mining, uh, minerals and mining related, but many are, many key, very important ones are. So that's one reason. The other reason is that metals and mining in are, the, those commodity prices are highly cyclical. One, they tend to move together. There tends to be a commodity sort of super cycle where they all move together, not in lockstep, but fairly closely related. The correlations are very high. And so when you see uh, commodities prices near cyclical lows and you see them all starting to turn, it's pretty reliable that they're going to head up for years after that, which is, by the way, where we're at now. So I know that Doug, Brickbull, Bill Bonner, the other people you know, in the sphere, we're all loading up in this space because we see another major bull for commodities ahead. I'll give that to your readers for free, too. I think you know this is something to watch now. Um, you think about something else. You know, you say, well, why do people think this? Or why do people think bad about speculators? Another common thing that people say or think poorly of is predictability. Like if you say, oh, he's so predictable. You know, that's bad, right? He's boring. He's predictable. But as an investor, predictability is the holy grail. That's exactly what you want. If you could predict something, right? If you knew that stocks were going to crash in late 2018, you could have sold everything, right? In, in August or September before the downturn, you would have cleaned up, right? You know, predictability is awesome. So this is what brings people to commodities and to metals and mining in particular, is that these things tend to be highly, highly cyclical. They're predictable. And you can see when they're expensive. You can see when they're relatively cheap. And, you know, as I'm sure almost anybody could intuitively grasp right off the top of the bat, you know, the formula is buy low, sell high. This helps us do that. So you mentioned that they kind of walk lockstep together. Is there one that often turns before the rest or do a lot of the commodities, does it just... no? They, they just kind of, it's fuzzy. And I just said not lockstep. I said they correlate highly, but it's not lockstep. Right. So we saw, for example, after the crash of 2008, uh, a lot of the commodities went up. Some of the industrial ones lagged behind, and not surprisingly, given the crash. It was a big economic crisis. Uh, but then oil went on to hit new highs. Copper went on to hit new highs. You know, four bucks and plus, and so on. It, way ahead of some others. And then, um, you know, oil held on far longer than the metals did. So they, but then it came down too. So it, it's a general precept. The idea is not to go out there and, and try to draw lines or 
or draw a chart saying, oh, well, you know, we curve here, therefore it'll be here in six months. That, that, that never works. But as a signal, as a, as a broad time to get in, time to get out, when you see the commodities prices on average turning together, it's a very reliable signal. And then is your preferred method getting into stocks? Do you uh, work in the futures markets? Do you work in derivatives? Or what type of things do you find to be most effective with your particular type of speculating? Right, I, I, I got it. And that's, that's another good question because there are lots of fancy things out there. And I find that it's, it's really not necessary. And um, I think it can be confusing, complicating, and can raise costs. In, in ways that are, aren't needed. And one more thing I'll throw in that you didn't bring up is leverage. As a speculator, I never use leverage. You know, if I was investing in something that I thought was very safe and I was very confident of, it wasn't really speculation, but just, you know, a solid investment like Warren Buffett style in something that's undervalued, throwing off cash. I'm not worried about it. I might consider using leverage, that is borrowing to increase the size of my position, my exposure to the upside. Um, but when I speculate, I understand that I am taking chances. And I understand that many speculations won't work out. Uh, so I never take leverage when I do that. I, I just trade straight cash, straight normal, buy the stock. I don't even short. Sometimes I'm tempted, but I don't even short. I just buy the stock in the commodity, related to the commodity I think is going to go up, and then sell when I no longer think it's going to go up. And the reason to buy the stocks as opposed to the thing itself was, well, sometimes the thing itself is difficult. If you believe uranium is going to go up, for example, nobody wants to buy uranium and put it in the basement. Um, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that one. <laughs> yeah, you can buy stocks in uranium companies. Um, but there's another reason, and that is that the companies that explore for or produce the commodities tend to move with leverage to the underlying commodity. So if you think gold is going to go up, which I do, I think this is going to be a great year for gold. We see the fear that we just talked about, right? The, the crashes in the markets in late 2018, and I think is setting us up for a terrific year of high volatility, weakening dollar, higher gold prices in 2019. So if you think gold's going to go up, the stocks typically go up by a multiple of the gold. If, uh, you know, gold goes up 4%, a profitable gold producer, may go up 20%, 30%. And and there's actually, a, it's not just a, a crazy thing that happens in the market. There's a reason for that. If you're producing and you're making, uh, I don't know, let's say your margin is $100 an ounce of gold produced and the price of gold goes up $100, well, your margin just doubled. You're now making $200 per ounce. Of gold. You know, if your margin doubles and you're making sneakers or cars or something, that's huge, right? If, if, Tesla could make their margins double, the stock would go through the roof. And we see similar things with uh, the, the metals and mining stocks. That's why we like them so much. Uh, Doug Casey famously calls them the most volatile stocks on earth, uh, and they can make fortunes. But let me throw one more thing in there, um, and tying into what I was saying earlier about speculating and why I have such you know, vanilla speculation, why I don't get into complicated vehicles. Uh, again, I am taking risks. It is possible to make the wrong bet. Even though it's not wild gambling, it's rational speculation. It's still a bet. 
and it can go against you. It is possible to lose 100% of the money that you put into a speculation. It can go so illiquid, or the government can discover an endangered mosquito on, on the project, right? Uh, and, and then just the stock goes no bid, and your, your, your entire capital is lost. Now, in practice, that almost never happens, or there are warning signs, and before a company goes bankrupt, you can exit at a huge loss, but you can still exit and get something back. I've never lost 100%. Of anything, but I'm being candid here, and I'm saying at least theoretically, it is possible to lose 100% of all the money you put in something speculative like this. Scary as that sounds, that's the limit: 100% loss. But, but there is no limit on the upside. Right? A stock can double 100% gain, it can triple, quadruple, and in this space, it is not uncommon for like in the situation we were describing where, you know, gold goes up $100, doubles the margin of the company, they can go up four or 500%. Even the bigger companies can hand you several hundreds of percent. So if you hear what I'm saying, right, the maximum theoretical, almost never achieved, but the maximum theoretical loss is 100%, but there's zero limit on the upside. In my career, I have uh, made recommendations that have literally gone up 1,000%. I think my highest is on the order of 2,000%, 20 times gain on the stock. Doug, he's bagged, yeah, Doug has bagged 50 and 100 times. You know, only a few times in his career, three times in his career has he got a 100 bagger. Uh, but he's actually had that happen. And I'm still working on that. <laughs> but you know what? I'm pretty happy with 20 times my money. You know what? I'm very happy with double my money. I would be very happy with either of those things. <laughs> So the logic here is you understand that you are speculating. It's not joshmosafeinvestment.com or, or newsletter. My newsletter is the independent speculator because I'm now independent from my mentors. Uh, and I want to, there's a double entendre. I want to encourage my readers to become people of independent means, as we used to say. And this fits into your broader mandate. I'm going off the side of the side point here, but it fits in your mandate, uh, helping people who want to internationalize, uh, becoming a speculator is a great way to do that. Because if you're tied in a nine-to-five job in some you know, office building in New York or Chicago, it's hard to expatriate. It's hard to internationalize your life. Um, but if you're making much of your income from capital gains in uh, successful speculations, you can live anywhere you want. Anywhere you have you know, a keyboard, you're in business. That's why I'm in Puerto Rico. It's certainly not the mining capital of the world. Um, so anyway, back to the point. The main point was uh, you can only even theoretically lose 100%, but you can make you know, 10, 20, 100, 1,000 more percent gains on these stocks. And so the wins make up for the losses. You, know, you, you understand when you speculate, I will take losses. There is no speculator who has only winners. You understand going in, I'm going to take losses, but the wins can be so big that they more than offset the losses. And uh, the the best way I can illustrate this is, you know, I'm, I'm just starting out, having completed my first year on my own. So my track record from the Casey date uh, was an average from 2004 when I joined to 2017, last full year when I left. The average gain of the portfolio, the main newsletter I was writing for, was 18.5% per year. Now, that's better than money in the bank. And that's speculating. That's not on safe investments. That's not a CD. It's 18.5% per 
including some years that were, you know, terrific. The average was more than 100%. And during that time, you had a massive recession. You had... Right. And there are other years that were wipeouts, right? You know, we, we lost money on average for the year. Um, the average over the entire time span that I was with Casey Research, though, was 18.5%. That's, that's a real uh, verifiable number. Um, you know, and, and that's what's possible when the downside is limited and the upside is not. Let me say one last thing. I've talked enough to hand the question back to you. But but an example that I want to give people of recent memory is the whole Bitcoin craze, right? At the end of 2017, Bitcoin uh, in 2017 goes up 20 times. Bitcoin was a was a 20 bagger in 2017, and for a lot of people, that was a wealth creating event. It was a once in a lifetime wealth creating event, and I get that. I'm fine with that. No jealousy here. But what I would tell people is. That was a once-in-a-lifetime event. But in mining stocks, and this gets to your original question, why do we focus as speculators so much in this space? In mining stocks, there's a 20-bagger every year uh, or you know, several 10-baggers a year and doubles and triples on a new discovery or you know, successful mine build or something like that are commonplace. That's why we get in this sector. So do you often place smaller bets to kind of hedge your risk so that you're not uh, putting all your eggs in one basket? Or do you do you find sometimes you're like, you just, you feel so sure of it and like really double down on something? Okay, we're just going to take a quick break. So if you guys haven't joined Expat Money Forum yet, then I don't know what I need to do to get you guys to go on this. The conversations in this forum are just unbelievable. The networking is fantastic. There's so much things being shared with the group that honestly, it's more than just me. It's more than just this podcast. It has grown to a life of its own. We have over 2,000 people in our private group discussing things like immigration, asset protection, travel, food, culture, history, everything about being an expat and going overseas. There's tons of work being done on Plan B residencies, on different passports. We're even talking about SIM cards, international SIM cards, and the best places to get your internet if you're a digital nomad and you're traveling around the world. There are so many things that are being shared by people who are actually in different countries, who are digital nomads, who are expats, who have gone offshore, and there's just so much there. So I'm really excited about it. I hope you can see that I'm really thrilled about this group because it's just more than I ever expected. And a massive shout out to you if you are part of the group and you are contributing and helping other people who are looking to get where you are. You are an awesome person. I really, really appreciate it. So if you guys want to get involved, if you want to join the conversation, then go to expatmoneyforum.com or on Facebook directly, you can search for Expat Money Forum. You'll find us there. We should come up on the very first page. And yeah, join the group, join the conversation. Lots happening there. Okay, let's jump back into today's interview. Yes and no, and never. <laughs> so absolutely, a basket approach is the best way to go about this. No matter how much you love something, it can go south on you. I mean, and suppose you have the most slam dunk, high margin, beautiful mine in the making in the world. And then, as I mentioned before, the EPA discovers an endangered mosquito on the property, and suddenly you're out of business. Right? I mean, you could do everything right and still get screwed. That happens. 
I mean, it really does. I'm the endangered mosquito. Okay. I'm making a funny example, but that really does happen where a government just decides, you know what? You're too close to that park. Or you know what? New government, new party in charge. We're not issuing any permits and you're, you're just dead in the water. So there is nothing in this space that is a sure thing. I would say in the post Lehman Brothers world ever since 2008, there's no, if there ever was, there's certainly no sure thing in any market anywhere. We're all speculators now. It's just that some of us know it and some of us don't. Um, but in this space, you should be aware that there are elevated risks and the only rational way to go about mitigating that is with a basket approach. Now, of course, what's a small bet for me is not the same thing as what's small for Doug. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not quite the, in the billionaire club yet. Um, and one size does not fit all. So what I usually tell readers when they ask about this is, um, you should have a basket and it should be such that you don't have too many pokers in the fire. If I can mix metaphors, if, if you have so many stocks in there that you can't keep track, or if you get a press release from one of the companies you're invested in and you don't know what it means, like you're not immediately aware of what the significance of these results are, or at least have an idea what this what this is good or bad or whatever. If you can't know that right away, you're at a disadvantage, and you probably have too much on your plate, too many eggs in your basket. On the other hand, you don't want it too concentrated because you know lightning can strike, and it can strike again nearby. You know, maybe not twice in a row the same place, but if, if you have say three and two of your eggs turn out to be duds, you're in trouble. So you want to have, you know, as as much diversity as you can well manage. And the other thing I would say, and this is applicable to anybody, it's not an individual level of advice, is that the amount you invest should be meaningful to you. I mean, it's hard enough to do this well and to pick the right stocks. Right? You know, I've been doing this for 15 years, and I still don't pick all winners. It's, it's a onward curve learning here. But it's hard enough to do it right when you do do it right, it would just be the most painful thing to be right and not win enough to make it worth your time. Like if I put a hundred bucks into some stock and I got a 10 bagger or a 20 bagger, great. Or even a 50 times winner, you know, that'd be $5,000. Okay. That'd pay my mortgage for a month. That's not going to change my life. It's not, you know, it, to, to be so right and to have it make so little difference would be 10 times more agonizing to me than to make a mistake or to have one go, you know, go wrong on. That happens. I'm a big boy. I can take that. <laughs> but to be right and not get paid, that would be terrible. Um, so I want to invest, and each person can think of this in their own minds. You know, what size of investment uh, would it matter to me if I got a double or triple here? And less than that, you know, it's probably not worth your time. That makes perfect sense. So let's talk a little bit about skills. Like what do you think are good qualities or characteristics that would make a, a effective, uh, speculator? I actually wrote something about this. I'm not sure it's on my current website or if I wrote about it in my Casey days, but maybe we can look for it afterwards. But I do think there is a psychology here. And I think, um, it, well, let me put it this way. It's an interesting thing to me that Doug Casey, my mentor, is such a firebrand. He's not just a libertarian. He's an anarchist and an atheist, uh, you know, to boot. And he doesn't hide that. And he he's polite. He, he doesn't try to upset people. But he does try to upset the apple cart. He does try to shake things up. So you'll see him give a speech where he'll throw an intellectual firebomb into the audience. 
Well, here's a fun story. I'm digressing off the digression, but I think it, it, it's it's practice. So I'll I'll tell you I'll tell your listeners how I met Doug Casey the first time. I told you before that I interviewed him. We'd been friends for years before I worked for him, but I hadn't met him in person. First time I met him in person was his first big appearance after the um, Twin Towers went down on September 11, 2001. It was a big conference, you know, lots of, you know, thousands of people, and he packed the room. You know, a lot of people here to hear, hear the famous Doug Casey, the globe-trotting speculator. And I don't remember what event it was, um, but I remember the what happened crystal clear in my mind. Doug's up there at the podium. There's a thousand people in this room or some big lecture hall full of people listening to the great Doug Casey talk. And this is right after 9-11, right? So people are wearing red, white, and blue. Patriotism's running high. You know, <laughs> that's the emotional environment. And for some reason, Doug starts talking about comparing the United States to the Roman Empire in its decline. And people were not enjoying that at all. Uh, and, you know, there was rumbling and, and even the occasional boo would break out or something. You know, people were just really unhappy. And then somehow Doug got on to um, saying that from the Roman perspective, it made sense to feed the Christians to the lions uh, because they were a destabilizing factor. Now, he didn't say it was it was okay to feed people to the lions. He was just saying that from the Roman perspective, it made sense. But that was just too much. You know, people could not handle that. And and there was loud booing and hissing and the evil eye and, and you know, fist pumping. And people got up, knocked chairs down. And literally about half the audience got up and walked out of this room. And I'll never forget this. You know, this is going on. This, <laughs> all this clatter and noise. People, you know, angrily leaving the hall. And Doug's standing up there at the podium. He picks up his little glass of water, swishes it around, wets his whistle. He leans into the microphone and he says, good, I didn't think they were paying attention. And he keeps right on going. <laughs> um, I'll never forget that. I, I understood at that point. I had read I had read about drop dead money in James Clavell's books. When I saw how little Doug cared about what anybody thought about him or his opinions, uh, I understood very well that he had dropped dead money. He could not care less. You know, Casey Research could disappear, and you know he'll never have to uh, you know, starve in his life. So he, you don't have to agree with things he says to be able to appreciate the sort of fresh breath of honesty he brings to a conversation, because he really doesn't care what anybody thinks. And, and therefore, he says exactly what he thinks. He's one of the most honest people I know, uh, because there's almost no consequence in the world that you know, could could put fear in it. So I tell you the story by way of answering your question of the traits of a good speculator. And, and this puts something on there. You know, Doug is so hardcore. He's so free market. And he, you know, in almost any other business, this would be seen as a negative, right? Suppose you, you wanted a, a, a manager for a large multinational company. You, you would want somebody who was suave, who would get along with people from other cultures. You know, Doug's kind of like George Burns. He smokes cigars and he drinks whiskey. That's not going to go down too well in the Arab world, for example, if he, he was sent, you know, to mediate a deal in the Middle East. 
the dev's going to be dug no matter where he goes. So what is a negative in other businesses, I think, is actually a strong positive in the speculation business. Why is that? If you remember what I said earlier on, the key is for the speculator to see the world as it really is, not through ideological blindness, not through intellectual uh, precepts, not because your parents told you this is the way this is, or because of any other outside influence. And if you're so hung up on how great, let's say, Russia is, right? You're patriotic, you're pro-Putin, you love Russia. Well, that makes it really difficult for you to see the, the real problems facing the Russian economy because you know, we're Russia, we're great, everything's fine. Of course it's fine, it has to be, we're Russia. You see what I'm saying? I don't want to pick another country any closer to most of your listeners' home, but that same psychology is a set of blinders or rose-colored glasses that gets in the way of seeing the world as it really is. To be a successful speculator, you cannot afford to have any prejudices intervene between you and the data. You know, and I'm not trying to sound like Jerome Powell here, data-driven. <laughs> uh, that just means wishy-washy we're not making up our minds. I'm saying you have to be, you know, as the saying goes, cold-blooded. You have to set your personal preferences. I'm not saying you should be an atheist like Doug. I'm not saying you should be an anarchist like Doug. I'm saying you should be able to see the world as it is without fear, without caring what anybody else thinks, and set aside whatever preferences you have, uh, and see it as it is, see the trends, and place your bets accordingly. I think that's the single most important attribute that a speculator can have. And the, the beauty of it is I think that's cultivatable. You know, some people are a little bit shy. Some people are more outgoing. You know, Myers-Briggs, there's all these personality types. I'm an INTJ. You know, somebody's different. Some things you're stuck with. But this that I'm talking about is something that I think anybody can develop with a little self-discipline. You identify what you want to be, how you want to be in this regard, and you exercise that discipline muscle, you're honest with yourself of like, okay, you know, I'm from Mexico, so I'm pro-Mexico. I know that, so I'm going to beware, and I'm going to make every effort not to have pro-Mexico blinders on when I look at mining in Mexico, say. So I was going to ask that question, and you completely answered it, because that was really what I wanted to know or where I was going to go from there is, is it a learned behavior or is it something that you are born with? Because we, I've talked to this many times, especially with my entrepreneurial crowd that listen to the show. You know, there's some certain uh, gurus out there who try to tell you that, you know, an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur. They were born an entrepreneur. Their parents were entrepreneurs. You know, you have to be like this to, to be able to be successful, which in I'd say 99.9% .9 of everything is complete bullshit. I think that we really shape our own reality. We make our own decisions. And if we don't like something, we can change it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I will, uh, maybe not push back, but I will pivot and say that you know, we do have a nature. You know, everybody does have a way of being that they're comfortable with. And some of that's harder to change. Some of it, I think, you know, there are, say, type A personalities. It's really hard. For a type A personality, short of a near-death experience, to change, um, and it's fair to recognize that. But that doesn't mean, therefore, I'm stuck or I can't do anything. What it does mean is that, you know, as as they say, know thyself, play to your strengths. That doesn't have to limit you if you can be honest with yourself about, you know, what is my character like? 
and what are my strengths? And then play to those. And even within this field of speculation, like I'm saying, you know, there's going to be people who have been more risk averse than others. And there are ways to accommodate that. So, for example, if let's say I'm a retiree on a fixed income, and even though I'm an adventurous soul, I can't really afford to risk my nest egg, and I'm, I'm going to be much more cautious in my investing and speculating. Well, but I also believe gold is going up, and I want to find some way to gain leverage and maybe increase my nest egg based on this trend that I believe is real in the world. Well, that person could gear their buying more towards the established producers, the companies that are profitable, you know, even in a crappy market, uh, you know, and there's much less risk for them. Whereas, let's say I'm a um, a twenty something and I don't have any kids yet, and I've got some extra money. I could have, I could laugh if I lost it all. It wouldn't hurt me. And I want to swing for the bleachers. I want one of these ten baggers or one of Doug Casey's famous one hundred baggers, right? Well, an existing large, profitable, stable producer is not going to give you a hundred times return. It's not going to give you ten or twenty. It's not likely to give you five unless you know the the commodity goes absolutely to the moon. Um, but an exploration play can't. There's much higher risk. Exploration is never a guaranteed result, even with the very best explorers in the world. But when it's successful, uh, these kind of stocks routinely give you 10 or 20 times your money. So the younger, you know, devil may care sort of person might make that choice. The more cautious person might make the other choice. So even within this sphere, there is room for different personality types uh, to play to their strengths and their concerns, uh, you know, be aware of their weaknesses. But it all comes back to, I think, this core quality of being honest with yourself. And I do believe that's something that anybody uh, sufficiently motivated, and hopefully making millions of dollars would motivate most people, you know, motivated can develop. So, okay, so we've 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 talked in depth about this one now. On the technical side, and, and I feel like I already know the answer, but I want to ask this anyways, because I want to, uh, you know, dispel rumors or I don't know how else to put it. But do you think that people need to go to university to study this type of thing, like to be an analyst, to understand how to read these things? No, let me jump in. No, no, that's the worst thing to do. That's why I prefaced it by, by saying I know the answer, but uh, it's still, <laughs> I know it's there in someone's mind. And I just want to, I want to squish it, you know? An MBA is a disqualifier in Doug Casey's mind, let me put it that way. Uh, when they when they hired me for my job and I started with Casey Research, I, you know, I, I was not making that up. I literally did not know what a warrant was. I had never invested in anything, um, you know, any equities, assets, stocks, bonds, none of that. Um, and from their perspective, that was a good thing. That meant I didn't come at it with the prejudices of you know, mainstream analysts on Wall Street. It, it's it's much easier for the typical uninitiated person out there to become a, an outstanding rational speculator than it is for a Wall Street leopard to change its spots and and disabuse themselves of all the false dogma that they've learned. I mean, just just watch the, the financial talking heads now, and they cannot conceive that there's anything wrong with the economy or mainstream equities or whatever, and, you know, nine out of ten of them are telling you to buy the dip. The, the correction that we've seen in late 2018 is a buying opportunity, not a warning signal. It just doesn't come into their brains that that could possibly be a warning signal. Um, 
because they look at all these technical issues that they're trained to look at. But they don't consider that those technical um, readers, uh, readouts, are misinforming them based on all the massive intervention in the economy since 2008, right? That That's just not part of how they think, and they literally cannot see the danger right underneath their feet. So, so no, there's no... Um, there's no school to go to for this. There's no book yet for this. It is a project. One of these days, I'm going to write that book in my copious spare time. Uh, but right now, um, best things you can do are sign up for the services. And you know, I'll toot my own horn here. I do try very hard to be educational. I have a free product called the Speculator's Digest, which is all about educating people. I, I don't give away stock picks there or anything, but I, I show people what I do. And it's my hope they'll upgrade from there to the paid letter where I, I say what I'm actually doing with my own money. Um, but it's not just me. You know, Doug's publications are highly educational. There's other people out there. Brent Cook is one of my peers. And he's, uh, you know, an honest-to-God geologist before he became a newsletter writer. Um, even if you never you know, acted on any of uh, his recommendations or his leadership. His newsletter is one of the most educational out there for people getting into this sector. So I, I wholly endorse my competition in that regard because he's that good. Well, and I think that the pie is big enough that, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. Oh, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about your adventures because I've got this romantic idea in my head of the, almost like an indiana jones type of character like running around and exploring mines is it like that is it completely not like that am i just making shit up here no no it, it the uh internally at casey research they used to call me indiana james uh, for precisely that reason but uh, maybe the one big difference is that somehow indy always held on to his hat and i can't <laughs> tell you how many times i lost my hat in jungle it flew out the helicopter it got swept away in the panama canal i have been through so many hats um I, the only reason i haven't been through more boots is because they're laced on your feet but i have actually worn out two pairs of boots on behalf of my readers i'm on my third pair of indestructible boots right now uh, i have traveled to 64 countries i've got more than a million miles on behalf of my readers that i can track you know it's hard to say how many you know dinky airlines miles i've got and of course, the miles on horseback or muleback or whatever, they're fewer but more painful. <laughs> so uh, what can I tell you for stories? Um, oh, one one would be, and this one I do remember where it was, it was in Colombia. I was in uh, a region in the northeast of the country where there are several large known gold projects and mines. And I was there looking at one company, and some people who had made a new discovery in a small exploration company nearby heard that I was there in Colombia and asked me to come look at the project. And this was way too soon. You know, I, they hadn't even really started exploring it. What had happened was that they had this this land uh, way up in the mountains, and there had been a, a landslide after a rainstorm, and it had exposed some quartz veins that seemed to have some gold in it. So they were sending their geologist up to have a look at this thing. And they knew I was there, and they knew I had a sense for what the market likes and, and rewards. And so they asked me to go along and have a look with their geologist. So that was that was pretty unique to be there, you know, first boots on the ground to look at this new, ex newly exposed quartz vein. Um, and we head out of Bucamaranga, Colombia, and after a while, you know, the road 
just sort of peters out and, and we pick up this guide and we're bumping along the tracks and he's pointing out the bullet holes in the walls of these places from the war with the narcos and the, and the militias that turned uh, feral against the people. And, and then finally we get to where the car's no good, so we, we mount up on horses and we're going up, you know, in, higher and higher into the mountain. And then we get to where the horses can't even handle it. Their four-wheel drive isn't good enough. It's vertical jungle. Uh, so we tie up the horses, and it's like climbing a ladder made out of mud and sticks, this vertical jungle. We're climbing up and up higher into the mountains. And finally we break out into this clearing above the tree line where this new, uh, newly exposed quartz vein was. And our guide takes us along to, to where it is, and we get to just below the quartz vein, and there's already a bunch of tarps and encampments set up by illegal miners <laughs> have already discovered this and moved in. Um, and and uh, the seven dwarves weren't home at the time. We showed up, and you know we could see they had already extracted what looked like a couple tons of, of ground up quartz, and they had they were so, it's amazing these illegal miners. Are so creative, right? They're, they're, they work outside the law, so they have to come up with their own ways of doing things. And they had built in this creek at the bottom of the ravine, they had built a small little dam out of stones, and they ran a section of fire hose down from this dam to a ball mill they set up. And they made a turbine out of wooden planks. So the, the, gar the uh, fire hose came down from the little dam and squirted out over a series of blades. I don't know. It was just ordinary wooden planks around a hub of some kind. And the, and the water sprayed on that and turned this turbine, uh, which was attached to a crankshaft, which was attached to a mini ball mill about the size, say, of half of an oil drum. Imagine a small washing machine with, uh, with uh, ore and steel balls inside. It goes round and round and grinds up the ore. And they had attached this uh, thing with another section of fire hose bolted together to make a band. <laughs> so they had, they had built a mill basically from scratch. you know. And I could barely haul myself, my body, up through this vertical jungle to get to this place. And these guys had brought up spools of fire hose and this iron mill thing that they put together in their contraption and the wood and all this stuff and tools and tarps. They brought it all up on their backs. Uh, faster than the geologists could even get there to look at this recent landslide exposed quartz vein. Um, so we're looking at this and poking around and then across the mountainside, sure enough, you could see the seven dwarfs heading back, except that it was more like 12 or 15 of them. And uh, in Colombia, in the mountains, you know, all men pretty much wear machetes. It's partly perhaps from the, the violence of the past, but also because you're dealing with the jungle and you need to hack your way through. So, you know, there's 12 or 15 illegal miners come across the mountainside, hi-ho, hi-ho, with their machetes. <laughs> and, you know, there's nowhere to run or hide, so we just waited for them. And they came in and looked at us in their camp. And I have to give credit where due to the geologist. The company geologist was very cool. And, and very smart. Instead of saying, oh, you know, don't worry, I'm from the company, we'll give you jobs, and we'll do all these wonderful things for you. He, you know, he could have tried to bribe them with promises. If he had, that would have backfired, because later in conversation, it turned out that some of these illegal miners had worked for larger companies before, and, you know, they'd been made many promises, promised jobs that never happened, and so on. So they, they would have 
probably Gret greeted that with uh, quite a bit of skepticism. Um, so, but instead, what the geologist did was he said, "Yeah, I'm with the company that has the resource rights here, um, but what you're doing, scratching on the surface, doesn't affect us at all. We don't care. We don't even know if we're going to explore here yet. This is a first-stage reconnaissance. I can't promise you jobs. I can't promise you anything. All I can say is." We're not worried about what you're doing. You know, carry on. We don't care. We're just going to look around and make our own assessment. And that was the right thing to say. You know, they pulled out the the carved up pieces of trunk and offered us a seat. They had some homemade booze they offered us. And they talked about grinding rocks and all kinds of cool things they were talking about on the Group W bench there. It was really funny. Um, it was an interesting case of simply being honest and forthright was absolutely the right thing to do. And and then, you know, once they were friendly, they took us over to show the, the vein and how they were working on it and you know, what they were finding and, you know, where the gold was. And it actually turned out to be very informative and, and helped the geologist quite a bit. Now, in, in the end, I think those those veins were quite narrow and the project never went forward. Uh, yet again, good reason the guy didn't promise anybody anything. But I remember when the, when the seven dwarfs first came home and they're all surrounding us with their hands on their machetes. It's me, the geologist, and a guy. And I'm thinking, well, that might be it for me. <laughs> but happy ending. Here we are. <laughs> That's crazy. That's awesome, though. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, 100%. By being honest with them, you actually got them to open up. And then you got some intel that, you know, if you had a guy, if you guys had been jerks about it or, or tried to lie to them or something like that, you would have, you know, on the, the the very bad side, maybe some physical harm, but certainly um, you would not have gotten any of that in, uh, insider information from it. And it, that's an important lesson you know, all around the world. You cannot equate a lack of formal education or poor clothing with stupidity. Uh, there are some very, very smart people that you could easily totally underestimate. I'll give you one more quick story if you want. I was in Mexico. Uh, and um, there was, a, and, and I'm, I'm, this is a mea culpa story here. I was in Mexico, and I was with the, the, the patron, right, with the property, and they had this, you know, laborer guy, uh, you know, in his traditional white homespun Mexican garb, right, and, and there was a warehouse that had these barrels and pipes and fittings and things in there, and um, there was this one barrel that had this valve on it that the patron wanted to use something else so he tells the the worker to remove the valve from the barrel and then he goes off to do something and i stood and, and watched the worker tackle this problem uh, this valve was fused onto the barrel it hadn't been used for years and it was just like rusted in place and the worker had no tools there was no pipe wrench you know this would take a huge pipe wrench you know uh, mario brothers side pipe wrench or something to try to get this thing off and he he had no tools he just had this warehouse <laughs> Full of junk and this barrel with this fused valve and i'm thinking to myself and i studied physics right you know, at our rensselaer polytechnic institute i'm a highly educated guy speak all these languages travel the world and i look at this problem and i said there's no way this poor slob is going to get this valve he's in trouble he's not having any beans and tortillas tonight um didn't say it out loud fortunately i just thought there's no way he's going to do this so he you know mexican guy scratches his head looks around and he finds a piece of rope, and he finds a piece of rebar that's like nine feet long. 
and he fashions a friction break, if you know what that is, out of the rope. But basically, it's a, it's a way of tying the rope that the, the harder you pull on it, the tighter it gets. So he made this friction break out of the rope, put the rebar in there, which is nine feet long, and, um, start, and started torquing that valve off. And damn if it didn't start moving. You know, that drum was ping and bang and screeching. And that valve just like slowly, a fraction of a millimeter at first, budges, and then it starts moving and bang, crash, clang. He gets the valve off. I was absolutely speechless. Um, and I, I've seen illegal miners in, in Bolivia, in Ghana, in all kinds of places come up with the most ingenious ways of solving problems in informal ways. It's astounding. So, Never assume that somebody who's not well-dressed or doesn't boast a bunch of PhDs is stupid. Yes, I, I will second that 100%. I'm uh, not formally trained in any sense of the word. I'm a complete autodidact. I dropped out of school around uh, you know, 15. I was out the door at 12. At 12 years old, I stopped going to school. And uh, you know, everything is self-taught, but I don't think you... I don't think anyone at this age, at 35, would ever call me stupid now. Um, you know, the amount that I read and understand, it's, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd put a lot more effort and a lot more stress on learning things um, hands-on from experience than I would from a textbook. But uh, I, I do rest. Absolutely. Listen, I want to, I think we got time for one more story if you got one for me. Um, so I read the Doug Casey High Ground novels, and the first book is called Speculator. And Charles Knight, the guy, is in Africa. Now, I always kind of thought the book was a little bit of Doug Casey, but now after our conversation, I'm thinking the book is maybe based on you. <laughs> I would be the, the, the young Doug Casey. Uh, when I read it, I thought Doug was the old wise advisor to the young hero. Absolutely. Um, the uncle in the apartment. It's a, it's a little bit of both. Um, do you have any good Africa stories for me, Lovo? I do not want to say <laughs> that Doug modeled his hero on me. Even arrogant as I am, that's a bit much for me to go there. And I don't think it's true. I think Doug put himself into various of his characters. Um, and in fact, Doug and I have a lot in common. Remember I told you when I first interviewed him that time, it was like I met my long lost brother. So if you see any similarities, I think that's just because Doug and I, I think, are cut from similar cloth. Um, but the story is based very loosely on the very real scam that happened back in the late 90s, the BREX scandal. Any of your listeners can look that up. It's B-R-E-X. It's perhaps the most famous mining scam of recent years. Uh, and, and the movie Gold was also based on this story. Though, strangely enough, I think the real story is even more salacious and exciting than what they put in that movie. I don't know why. Uh, but, yeah, Doug's story is based on that. I think his characters are based on people, himself and others in his life. It's a funny thing. Um, I remember, you know, once I was sitting with Doug at breakfast and he was kind of moping and unhappy about things in general. He's not in his best mood. And I said, Doug, stop whining. If you really think that way, you know, you keep saying that if you were young, you'd go to Africa and start all over again from scratch. And I said, well, give all your money away and go to Africa, you know, airdrop yourself in the middle of Africa with not a penny your name and either die 
or succeed and come out reinvigorated and excited, you know, about life again and your success. And he looked at me and said, you know, I should do that. <laughs> and he did, he didn't. Uh, but in my most recent conversation with him, he did say that you know, he's really enjoying these books. You know, he'd, he'd like to just sort of sit back for a while, cash in on the next big bull run, sit back for a while. And then, you know, when he gets bored, he might just do that. So maybe it's really the, the future Doug we're looking at in Charles Knight, his own ideal self. Once the nanobots make him young again. <laughs> he's a big one for the technology. I know you are too, actually. Mm -hmm. Well, saying all of that, I'm sure you've had a chance to visit some crazy mines in Africa. Any, any... Yeah. Why don't I just tell you some of the things that I've seen? Okay, tell me the things you've seen, because I, I have this love affair with Africa. All my listeners know this. Okay, so speaking of Doug in Africa, it really is an amazing place where the incredible is, is possible, commonplace. It is a bit of the Wild West. Um, but in the same way that speculator is a besmirched word. I think Wild West is also kind of a besmirched concept. You know, we say Wild West and we think of these, you know, Western movies where Mexican banditos come in and terrorize some town. Uh, but in fact, you know, the West wouldn't have grown and pros prospered if that was what normally happened. Those were exceptional events. What normally happened is people went out and were perfectly free to do whatever they wanted and they created wealth. Built farms, they built mines, they built cities, uh, with no government telling them what to do. They did it very quickly, efficiently, <laughs> and, and prospered. So, I don't think of Wild West as a bad thing, and you see this quite a bit in Africa. It's astonishing to see the rate of change. You go to a place like Accra, the capital of Ghana, and in a year, the, the changes are huge. The number of new buildings, new roads, all the stuff going in. And then you see other amazing things. Um, for example, I went to a gold project in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo once, where you think of a gold mine, and it's either an, an underground system of tunnels with supports and things, and it's a pretty heavy-duty engineering project, or it's a great big open pit where you have these giant trucks hauling the ore out, and it doesn't look so engineered, but actually the engineering there is quite careful too, because you're always trying to make the pit walls as steep as possible to move as little dirt as possible without the walls collapsing in on you. And that's always a fine balance there. Um, so these are big business ventures today where millions of dollars, even hundreds of millions of dollars, and in some cases, billions of dollars are put into building these mines correctly and safely. But you go to Africa, and you see the most amazing things. For example, I saw one very large open pit mine that was literally hand dug. Because in many of these African countries, the rules are that if you can, as an artisan miner, uh, not necessarily an illegal miner, but as an artisan miner, if you can dig things out of your ancestral grounds with hand tools, then that's free for you. You know, if you want to build a mine underground, then you have to get a license from the government. But if you can dig it out of the dirt with your wooden owl or whatever, then that's free and above board for you. So the very entrepreneurial Africans have devised a technology for building large-scale mines with hand tools. And this pit that I'm telling you about, it was basically an inverted ziggurat. If you picture a stair-step pyramid, but upside down, a hole in the ground in stair steps. And what they do is they line up some guys and they start digging a trench. And then once it gets um, to shoulder or head depth, they line up guys next to them who start digging a, a, a trench next to them or a space next to them. 
And as the guys further down dig, they toss the dirt onto the step above them. And those guys toss it onto the step above them. And the whole thing goes deeper and deeper into the ground, growing step by step. And this one that I saw, I have a picture of it somewhere, was maybe 10 steps deep, 10 man-high steps deep. This is a great big hole in the ground, completely dug by hand, with each guy uh, tossing the dirt and his shovel onto the ledge above him, where another guy by hand would toss it onto the ledge above him and dig out this gigantic open pit mine in the ground. Uh, just amazing things. Of course, it's dangerous, and you hear about people getting trapped. Uh, you know, rain causes a landslide or something. Uh, but you're also talking about people whose other choice is starvation for their family or something, and you know, they're willing to take that risk and take those jobs. Um, so I, I think it's kind of arrogant for Westerners to come in and say they shouldn't do this. You know, it's it's kind of painful to look at. But given their choices, I, I would not want to deny them this opportunity myself. Yeah, I went to Nigeria uh, last year, and you're right about that entrepreneurial skill. You see people doing their best to create wealth out of nothing. Like, I didn't see people sitting around and begging or panhandling or something like that. People were working, and even if they didn't have advanced machinery, they were they were building roads, they were building infrastructure, they were doing everything they possibly could. Yes, it is. I, the the one, you know, play play the other side of the coin here, but to be fair, the one thing that I have to say does really disturb me when I see it is when they put children to work. Um, and, and again, I guess, you know, if their choice is starving, I can kind of understand it at one level, but it's it's so sad to see really young children working. And, and particularly in Africa, um in these places where they, they mine by hand, right? They don't have proper ventilation systems. And they've discovered that children breathe less air than adults. So when you get down into some tunnel somewhere and there's not much airflow, you can send the children down into the tunnel to work where a man could not. And they even give them drugs uh, to slow their metabolic rate down a bit so they use less air. And then, of course, if there's a collapse, you end up with a bunch of children buried in the ground. It, it's... I, I I can't condone that. So it's not all good. You know, poverty is a bad thing anywhere in the world. Um, but you know, eh, life struggles, and people try to move ahead any way they can. Well, and I think that's why it's so important what you're doing and what so many of my guests on this show are doing is they're teaching people and helping educate people how they can create wealth for themselves. Because as you said, you know, poverty is a terrible thing. Actually, and do we have time for one more quick story? Absolutely. Cause I don't want to leave on that. note, Lobo. <laughs> yeah. That's a kind of a negative note. No, but it can be a real win-win. And one of the most painful things for me is when I travel around the world and I go to some project somewhere and the villagers there, you know, the, the project is never under, in a big city, right? If, if you discovered gold underneath the strands, streets of Manhattan, you wouldn't build an open pit mine there because the, the real estate's worth more for buildings. So it's always out in the hinterland. And in the developing world, that means where people are very poor, usually. And the people in the villages, they don't know who I am, but they know that the company people have money and they're important. And they can see the company people treating me like, I'm really important because I'm the newsletter writer who can help them move their stock, right? So they don't know who I am, but they know I'm really important. And so they invite me in and they 
they share their meager dinner with me or something. And when I'm there and I can see the project has merit, this could be a mine someday and you know, investment could come and change these people's lives. It's great. I feel like I am part of Adam Smith's invisible hand and the self-interest of investors in uh, you know, North America can materially change these poor people's lives for the better uh, without any government handouts or, or you know, stolen tax money being thrown at them or something. So it's, it's a great win-win when that happens. It's sad when you go and the project doesn't have a chance. But, you know, I, I can't lie to the market because I want to help these people. That would destroy my ability to guide the market. So the sad thing is that you have to, you can't help everybody. But the beautiful thing is that you can help people. And the story I wanted to say is I, I have been to several places where I was there when they were exploring. And then I went back after the mine was built. And one of the most dramatic cases of a win-win-win for everybody was in southern Mexico in a rural community where you know, lots of poor people with not a lot of education, where you could literally see the sleepy Mexican on the street in the afternoon with a sombrero over his head taking a nap, and a kind of community where it's typical for you know, men to beat their wives because that's what you do. You know, If you don't beat your wife, there's something wrong with you. You have to show them who wears the pants in the house and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I may sound like I'm being racist or prejudiced or whatever, but my mother's from Mexico. I have seen this myself growing up. It's true. You know, Mexico is the home of macho behavior. That's where the word comes from, uh, in my experience. And so this is that type of rural community where those old values still held sway. The project is a success. They define high-grade resources, high margin. They build the mine. And I go back and I see. And it turns out that and this is a trend actually across the mining world, a lot of places they prefer in situations like this to hire young women over young men for things that aren't necessarily, you know, brute force labor. Because young men, you teach them some skill, and then, oh, I got skills now, and they go off and find some other job somewhere else. They, they turn over much more quickly, whereas women tend to have roots in the community or children that keep them where they are. So if you train a woman to do something, she's more likely to stay than go. And also, oddly enough, you put a young man in a 300-ton truck or something, and he's like, oh, big truck, you know, he feels, he feels all excited, and he's more likely to, to crash it or, or go too fast or scrape the corners or something. You put a young lady in a giant mining truck or scoop or something, and it's this huge, impressive piece of equipment, and she's very careful with it. You know, her, her tendency on average, and this may sound sexist and whatever, but these are statistical facts, okay? You put young ladies in heavy equipment, and they tend to treat it better. Um, so I go to this mine, and 60% of the employees in the plant are female, and, and they're local. And you see the town is completely transformed. The streets are paved. There are streetlights. Uh, there's several restaurants and little hotels, not owned by the company, but just because of the business stirred up. You know, all these spin-off businesses created, wealth created for the community. But the, but the funny thing is, you know, they hired all these women and the women are now making more money than their husbands. Think about what that does. Now, this could be disruptive and some people won't like it, but it's a funny thing. You know, if your wife is making more money than you are, you really can't beat her and then expect her to pay for your beer. So suddenly it changes the whole social dynamic and that age old culture, macho culture of treating the little lady with disrespect, it goes out the window when she makes more money than you do. 
and and <laughs> level the playing field, maybe more than that. But I just, I just found this to be such an uplifting and positive thing to see the transformation of this town from a traditional, sleepy, poverty-stricken backwater to a bustling, thriving, and in modern, in every sense of the word, little town uh, with much greater equality and opportunity for all. And that's a true story. The mine is called San Jose. It's owned by Fortuna Silver Mines. I do not own that stock at this time, uh, but I was there and I saw this with my own eyes. That's brilliant. Good for those girls. Good for those girls. That's awesome. Lobo, thank you so much for today's interview. I love the stories. My face hurts from laughing. There's so many funny things today, but, but you shared some really great information as well. Um, I really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, it's been a pleasure, and I thank you for the opportunity. It's been fun. Of course, I encourage everybody to check out independentspeculator.com. I, I would love to help them in their journey to become successful speculators. It's my mission. Well, I've been subscribed to your newsletter for a little while now, and I love your writing. You are quite prolific, and uh, you have a very fantastic way of explaining things, and very entertaining, just like today's stories. So I highly encourage my readers to check out your work. Awesome. Thanks much. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much, Lobo. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. I want to remind you that if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you're going to be able to download our special report. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It has been a project of mine I have been working on for maybe four years now, and I constantly update this with the newest and best strategies. Now, it's really different than a lot of other special reports or books out there because this one is really short, and it is short on purpose. What I want to do is kind of highlight to you the best of the best strategies that are out there in the world and then where you can go for additional information or how you can get involved in these things. So instead of writing a 500-page special report on this, which probably chances are no one is going to read it, this is really highly condensed information. I've actually put it in an infographic. It's an infographic special report. It has helped thousands upon thousands of people really get a grasp of being an expat and what type of things are out there to protect your assets, professionals that you should be working with, investments, real estate, these types of things. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can pick it up at expatmoneyshow.com. You'll see it. It's on the very first page at the very top. All you need to do is put in your name and email address. You're going to get a chance to actually join my private email list, EMS Pulse. And there's just so much great things that are shared on there. It's completely free. There's no funnel. There's no trick to this. There's no credit card needed, anything like that. It's just a good resource for you, my listener, who I love and adore. And I want to do right by you guys. So go to expatmoneyshow.com, pick this up, let me know what you think. I'll talk to you soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming 
to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.